You, if you were in your growth group, uh, you got a pretty good introduction today to who Amos is, where he came from, and what the circumstances were. So I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that background, but I do need to give you a little bit for those of you that weren't in your growth group this morning. Uh, this is one of those series where we have the privilege of tying together what we're studying in our growth groups on Sunday morning directly with what the sermon's going to be. So this morning, uh, you looked at who Amos was with a, a couple of verses from Amos and a passage from 2 Kings that helps you understand the political climate to which Amos was speaking. Amos was a prophet, though he was not a prophet. Amos was not a professional prophet. Uh, Amos was a, a farmer and rancher. He was a sheep breeder, and he took care, care of sycamore figs. Uh, we see that in Scripture, and we'll see that as we read through the book of Amos. We'll see some of it today. He did not consider himself a professional prophet, but he was living in a, a small town and was kind of a military outpost he was living in Judah, which was the southern kingdom. So imagine in your mind, after the 12 tribes of Israel occupied the land, they defeated Jericho, they spread out, they occupied the promised land. Uh, you had a, a, a few decades, essentially, several decades of uh, the United Kingdom with all 12 tribes working together. And then eventually, you had a split after David. And so... Uh, the 10 northern tribes split off from the southern tribes. We generally refer to the southern tribes as Judah, the northern tribes as Israel. That's how you'll see them uh, identified in Scripture. And that gets confusing because when we think of Israel now, we think of that little piece of land. Well, Israel, from the Old Testament idea of Israel, those 10 tribes of the northern Israel are no more. In fact, if you've heard the term lost tribes of Israel, it relates to what we're going to be studying and the environment that came right after Amos. What happened was when, a when Amos became a prophet, those northern tribes were, uh, they had expanded, uh, they, had, they were at their greatest height in military and economics, and yet they were being ruled by a king who was did evil in the sight of the Lord is what we learn from 2 Kings. And so Amos, who's this sheep herder, apparently just a man of God who had no interest in being a prophet, he tells us uh, later, I am not, I'm not the prophet nor the son of a prophet. Uh, when he says he's not the son of a prophet, that may relate to the fact that his daddy and his granddaddy weren't prophets, but more than likely, it, it relates to the idea that he was not trained in a prof prophetic school. You may think back to Elijah and Elisha, where, where Elijah had a, a school of prophets. And oftentimes, they'd be referred to as the sons of Elijah. They were sons of the prophet. So what he's saying is, I haven't even been trained. I'm a, I'm a sheep herder, and I take care of fig trees. But God gave me a message to bring to you. So he quits his job, and he, he, he's living in this town, Tekoa, uh, that is a military outpost on the border of, of Israel and Judah. And so he knows, he, he, he gets the news, right? They don't have newspapers, internet, of course, but he knows what's going on. And he understands what's going, what the, the political circumstances are in Israel. And yet God gives him a message to go warn them because the way they were going about their, the spread of the kingdom even and what was going on in Israel was not of God. They were worshiping other gods. 
and, and they had uh, given in to uh, just a luxurious lifestyle. They were building their empires on the backs of the poor. And you'll see a lot of these warnings that come out in the book of Amos. And so he was given a message to take to Israel. So he basically quits herding sheep, quits tending his garden, and he goes and he starts saying, thus saith the Lord. Now we entitled our sermon series, Hear the Lion Roar. Uh, you will... You will understand why as we read through Amos, and in verse 2, uh, Amos begins his, his first speech by saying, the Lord roars from Zion. And then later on in, in, Acts, or in Amos chapter 3, he says, who is not afraid when the lion roars? And he, I, he, he connects this picture of the message that God has for the nation of Israel with that of a roaring lion. And, and, you know, certainly what I was thinking of how, to, you know, how do you illustrate this? I've never been walking through the jungle and had a, a lion roar at me, come running out. Though I did, uh, Susan and I are going to be going camping up in uh, northwestern Wyoming and in Montana. Just this week, there was a hiker who was hiking up one of the peaks in that area who apparently surprised a big grizzly bear. And that camper is now in uh, Idaho Falls Hospital uh, after being mauled by the grizzly bear. And he had taken all the precautions. He had his bear spray and everything, but he surprised the bear. The bear surprised him, and he didn't get his bear spray out quick enough. And uh, so, you know, I was thinking of that. What if I'm hiking up one of those mountains and I hear that bear roar, hear that bear coming? Hey, this isn't the same, but when Kevin was here, he loved to hide around the corner and, and jump out and yell, right? You know, all of us do it to There's several pranksters around here, but Kevin, Kevin was kind of a master at it, and he especially loved doing it to, to Julie. Uh, there's two things that get you when somebody jumps out from the dark and hollers at you. One, one thing that'll scare you is the volume of the yell. It's quiet. You're not expecting anything. You're walking down the hallway and out from a doorway jumps Kevin going, ah, you know, the volume of his yell will be enough to shake you up a little bit. The other thing that gets you is the surprise factor. In fact, normally that's the, that's the biggest thing that catches you off guard. I'm going to suggest to you that the roar of the lion contained both of those factors for the people of Israel. Not only were they, should they have been afraid because of the words that came out of God's mouth, the words of warning, but I think that they were probably caught off guard because they were living in luxury. The wealthy, the religious, the elite, the landowners, they had it made. They, some of them owned multiple homes. They had beach houses, you're going to find out in Amos. And, and, and they were rich and they were wealthy. And for God to come and say, you're sinning against me, I'm about to take it all from you, was a surprise. Certainly, if we're doing good financially, it must be because God's blessing us, right? And I think that's one of the warnings we need to watch here because sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, we connect financial well-being with the Lord's blessing. That's not always the case. So read with me. We're going to read all the way through the first two chapters. This is our text for today. Uh, Amos chapter 1 and 2. The words of Amos, 
who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa. What he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. And the pastors of the shepherds mourn the summit of Carmel withers. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they thresh Gilead with iron sledges. Therefore, I will send fire against Hazel's palace, and I will assume Ben-Hadad's citadels. I will break down the gate. Wait a minute. Man, this is not as fun a text as Philemon. Philemon was about God's love and, and mercy and restoration. We're just getting started. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will cut off the ruler from the valley of Avon and the one who wields the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Aram will be exiled to Kerr and the, the Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Eden. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Gaza and I will consume its citadels. I will cut off the ruler from Ashdod and the one who wields the scepter from Ashkelon. I will also turn my hand against Ekron and the remainder of the Philistines will perish. The Lord God has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom, and they broke a treaty of brotherhood. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Tyre, and it will consume its citadels. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes, even four, because he pursued his brother with a sword. He stifled his compassion, his anger toward him continually, and he harbored his rage incessantly. Therefore, I will send fire against Timon, and it will consume the citadels of Bozra, or Bozra. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. Therefore, I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah, and I will consume its citadels. There will be shouting on the day of battle and a violent wind on the day of the storm. Their king and his princes will go into exile together. The Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even four, because he burned the bones of the kings of Edom to lime. Therefore, I will send fire against Moab, and it will consume the citadels of Korioth. Moab will die with a tumult, and shout with shouting and the sound of the ram's horn. I will cut off the judge from the land and kill all his officials with him. The Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel. For three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and they obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral and in the house of their God. They drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. 
And I brought you out from the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you have made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets do not prophesy. Look, I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who is swift of foot will not save himself, and the one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. As I read that, certainly it's easy to get caught up in the, in the proclamation of the Lord against the people. It sounds all like one big hodgepodge mess of doom and destruction that's coming. But let me sort it out for you very quickly. Because I, didn't I say up front that Amos was going to prophesy against Israel? Amos's words, the book of Amos is against Israel, God's people in that northern kingdom who deserve God's punishment. Well, what is this about all of these others that, are, that, that, that he's talking about? Why is he mentioned in Damascus? Why Gaza? Why Edom? Let me, let me illustrate it to you this way. Have you ever gone to one of your kids, and teachers, you, you, you hear the same thing here. You've gone to one of your kids, and you start to discipline them, or you start to call them out on something they did wrong, and what's one of the first things they start doing? Well, what about him? What about her? Look what she did. Look what he did. I'm not the only one. Why are you, why are you upset with me? Look at what, what, what everybody else did. And so what Amos does here and what the Lord does is he begins to set the stage for what's coming to Israel. What's coming is going to be bad. Amos' prophecies came, became full, fully fulfilled, became true as God used the, the Assyrian kingdom to completely crush Israel. And when the Assyrian kingdom crushed Israel, they, they, they took all of those who were wealthy, all of the property owners, all of the leaders, all of the people of means, and they scattered them out. And the, the Assyrian kingdom's uh, philosophy of, of conquering another nation is they would take families apart and they would spread them all across their kingdom so that they would be forced to intermarry and intermingle, and they would not be able to have any national identity. They wouldn't be able to coalesce their power to rebel. That was the Syrians' way when they would conquer a kingdom. And so when the northern kingdom, Israel, was conquered by the Syrian empire and Samaria fell in 722 B.C., that's exactly what happened. The nation of Israel, those 10 tribes, disappeared. And they became known to us 3,000 almost years later as the lost tribes of Israel. God did punish Israel, but what God wanted them to understand was, I see it all. He starts, and, and, and if you were to take a map, and I actually did this last night just to verify it as I looked through it myself, you take a map of Judah and Israel, and you look at the names he calls out. First one he calls out is northeast of Israel, and, and he says, I'm going to punish Damascus, and then sometimes he'll mention little towns that are in the area of Damascus. I'm going to punish Damascus for their sin. And then he comes down here to the southwest, and he says, I'm going to punish Gaza. That's where the Philistines were. I'm going to punish Gaza for their sin. And then he comes up here, and he says, and I'm going to 
to punish Tyre. I've seen what they've done, and I've seen their sin. I'm going to deal with Tyre too. They're up to the, to the northwest of Israel. And then he comes straight due south to Edom in the area of Edom. And he says, I'm going to punish Edom, and I'm going to deal with them for their sin and what they've done against me. And then he goes to the northeast, and he says, the Ammonites, remember them? I'm going to punish them for their crimes as well. And he comes south of the Ammonites. He says, the Moabites, because of their sin and the way they've sinned against me, I'm going to punish them as well. And he's drawn a circle all the way around Israel and Judah. And he says, I see what they're doing. I see their sin and I see their sin and I've seen what they've done and I've seen what they've done and they'll be punished. Those nations will not last. Have any of you visited Edom recently? You've gone to the, to, to, to the nation of Gaza? God did what he promised he was going to do. He dealt with those nations as he punished them and he dealt with them for their sin. But now he's, he's getting to Israel. He says, and even your little brother down here, Judah. I've seen what Judah's done. And Judah's going to be punished for her sin as well. Ultimately, because Judah repented and turned back toward God, Judah was not defeated, not destroyed by the Amorites, God, by, by the Assyrians, I'm sorry. God intervened. And Judah lived through that, that Assyrian empire and came out the other side of the Assyrian empire whole and intact. Judah, the nation of Judah, was eventually defeated by the Babylonian empire and taken captive because of their sin. But the Babylons had a different perspective. They, they went about things differently. They, they allowed nations to maintain their identity. They took a bunch of people out of Jerusalem, took the best and the brightest, took them, took them to, to Babylon and sought to use them. And so eventually when Judah was resettled under the Persian empire, those southern two tribes kept their identity. And as God promised, God delivered a Savior. Just as he promised, all the way back to Abraham, God delivered a Savior through Judah. God kept his promise all along the way. But the Assyrian kingdom didn't get to destroy Judah, the southern two tribes. But God says, nevertheless, Israel, I, I see what your little sister's done. I see what Judah's done. And they're going to be punished for their sin too. You get to that there in, in, in chapter 2, verse 4. I'm not going to relent from punishing Judah. I'm not going to hold back my punishment for them. They, were, they, they rejected my instruction. They haven't kept my statutes. They've gone astray. And so I'm also going to punish them. But Israel, I've had it. Don't be pointing at what everybody else is doing because this is your issue. This is between you and I. This is your sin that what we learn from, from the first chapter and a half of Amos is that no nation's sin is going to go unpunished. The Lord is sovereign over every nation on the earth. The Lord rules over all nations. There is no one who is more powerful than the Lord our God who sits on high. He rules over the, the affairs of every nation. And, and we may step back and say, well, that's not fair. Well, that's not fair. Well, look at what they did. Look at what they did. Be assured that God sees. God understands. And so 
I think one other takeaway that I want to I take from this first chapter and a half as we look at, at, at his, uh, his declaration against all of these other kingdoms is we need to be pretty careful about sitting back in our comfortable chairs and saying, yeah, they got what they deserve. God's going to get them for their sin. Because God keeps his promise. We ought not rejoice in God's discipline of those whom we don't like. Because if we, are to turn, if we turn our backs on God, we're disobedient, God will discipline his children. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Amos. And then he lists Israel's crime. Now, you'll notice each of the, the other kingdoms that God spoke out against through Amos, you have a small section, two or three verses, where he, he basically lists them. So that's what he's doing. He's going, see this one? I'm going to deal with them. 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 But the message is for you. This message, what I have to say, Israel, you better listen because this is for you. And then he delineates Israel's sin in starting in verse 6 of chapter 2. There's four things that I, that I want to identify here. The first one is they had put value in their riches above people. Money was more important than other people. He, he expresses it in this way. Uh, they, they sell a righteous person for silver, a needy for a pair of sandals, even someone who is a good person. If I can get something out of you to make more money, I'll use you. There is, I had a... A friend in high school, uh, Sam Griffith, who he he had a little truism, a little saying. This kind of stuck with me because I, you know, sometimes those little truisms are they're just that they're true. He said, "There's two things in life," and he called them things. I mean, this is a ninth grader. Two things in life going to last forever: God and people. Think about that. God is going to last for eternity, and people are going to last forever. The scripture says people are either going to last in the presence of God or separated from God after we leave this earth, but people are going to last forever. So if there's only two things, okay, that have eternal significance, God and those who are created in his image, where ought our value be placed? The greatest value should always be placed on our relationship with God and people, if we ever come to a point where we use people for financial benefit, we have placed money, something that is temporary, over the value of the person. God calls out Israel because they had taken even righteous people and used them so they could gain a little bit more money. We have to be cautious in our, I mean, it's easy for us. I, you know, I, I don't see any uh, Bill Gates or uh, Jeff Bezos in this crowd. There's not anybody here who's a trillionaire, right? Nobody here who owns a major corporation. And so it's real easy for us to look back and say, well, look at what those big corporations do. 
Look how they use people to make more money. Look at how they misuse people. But I think every one of us has to be extremely cautious in our everyday relationships and dealing with people. Do we put value, more value on people who could bring us more income, give us nicer gifts, do more for us? How do we address that? How do we handle that in our everyday lives? We have to be cautious to not put money over people. Second, this is very closely akin to the first, and it's hard to separate. So I almost think that this is why Amos says there's three, even four, because the second one is they trample the heads of the poor into dust in the ground. The idea here is not just using people, but it's ignoring the plight of the poor. It's ignoring the plight of the one who's hungry, the, the plight of the one who's thirsty, the plight of the one who's needy. And as I read that passage, I think not just of the physical needs of, of the poor in our, in our land, but over just the last few weeks, as, as the Lord dealt with me as I was praying about and seeking his direction on how to, how to work through the issue with the protesters and, and, and those who are outside a church who don't know Christ, who clearly, many of them claim atheism. Do we allow hatred to grow up in our heart for them or do we do what Jesus did and have compassion in our hearts for those who are spiritually poor, those who are spiritually bankrupt? See, it's real easy for us to stand back and look at the sinners in our nation and call them out and call them sinners. But what Jesus did when he looked at the sinners, those who were lost, he saw them as sheep who were, they, they were like, like sheep without a shepherd. They needed love. They needed somebody to point them to Jesus. How do we deal with the poor? How do we deal with the spiritually bankrupt? How do we deal with the physically bankrupt? A true measure of our walk with the Lord is how we treat people, especially people who couldn't do anything for us. We saw this in the story of Paul and Onesimus and Philemon. But ultimately, the truth is, how did God treat me? There's absolutely nothing that I can do for God, and yet he sent his son to die for me. How do we treat the poorest of the poor, those who need us the most? Third, Israel was taken over by, in fact, we don't see this in any of the other uh, nations that he called out, but they're taken over by sexual promiscuity. It had gotten so bad that fathers and sons were even having relationships with the same woman. What an what a incredible, filthy picture of, of the misuse of something good that God blessed us with as his children. A nation who makes money their king and who tramples the heads of the poor and turns to sexual promiscuity is a nation that is always going to come under the condemnation of God. I think about even the words that are written on the Statue of Liberty on this Independence Day. Send me. You're poor. You're wretched. You're needy. That's who we once stood for as a nation. 
And then fourth, they make little of the house of God. They have They've developed a religious apathy, even to the extent that it's almost as though there is no God. They, 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 instead of going to the altar to worship, they stretch out garments in front of the altar that they have taken as collateral on a loan. <laughs> they make a mockery of the house of God. Worship for them was, was not worship. It was just going through the motions. It was just an exercise. And, and, and in fact... Even to the point that uh, they begin to turn against the prophets. They, they ask the, the, the preachers, don't, 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 don't preach those hard things. Don't, don't, don't be like those prophets. Nazarites, we know that y'all took a vow not to drink alcohol, but it's okay. You make us feel bad when, when, when you drink alcohol. So, I mean, when you don't drink alcohol, y'all go ahead and drink too. That'll make us feel better. <laughs> and so they begin to to belittle, not just become apathetic to who God was, but to belittle the people of God. And so you see in a nation that Amos is about to deliver these great oracles against. You see a nation who has decided that, that their economy, making money, the rich making money, was, it was okay. To, to do that at the expense of anybody else. If you get in my way of making money, I'm just going to trample you. A nation that had, had, had made that the number one goal, a nation of people who had mistreated the poor and needy, who no longer welcomed the poor and the needy and the hungry into their homes to help them, a nation who had turned to sexual promiscuity and a nation who had become religiously apathetic. In the last decade, for the first time in the history of this nation, the United States became known as the nation that had a larger percentage who claimed no affiliation to Christ at all, no religious affiliation. For the first time in history, we have generations that are growing up with a majority don't know, don't want to know, and don't care to know anything about God. I believe that the, the words of Amos, the warnings of Amos, ought to be taken as a warning to us in our nation. And I think we need to be careful in the church not to say, look at them, look at their sin. I think we need to be cautious as we work through the, 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 the book of Amos to look in our own hearts and, and ask God, how does this speak to me? Quickly. Why is the Lord so mad at Israel? Well, he called out the other nations for their sin, but why is he so mad at Israel? And he tells them right here in the text. He said, I'm angry at you because I established you. You would not even be a nation if it weren't for me. I'm the one who defeated your enemies. Who is it that destroyed the, Am the Ammonites so that you could even have this land? Who is it that brought you up out of the land of Egypt? who rescued you out of slavery. I delivered you. I'm the one who's, who's given you your freedom. I'm the one who sent prophets, men of God. I raised them up and I sent them to you so that they would declare my word so that you could know me. The reason that God was so angry with Israel was because Israel was his people. 
and they've completely turned against him 100%. I am not necessarily of the ilk that believes that, that the United States of America is the same as Israel. We're not God's chosen nation. God chose Israel to send us a savior, okay? God sent us Jesus through the lineage of Israel. But I've done enough reading in American history to understand that God had his hand upon the founding of this nation in a very special way. I've mentioned it recently. I mentioned it in Sunday school again this morning. I recently read a book called In the Hand of Providence. I believe that God did, provided miracles so that this nation could become a nation that became a beacon for freedom for centuries. And yet we now live in a nation who puts money over people, mistreat the poor, are plagued with sexual promiscuity and religious apathy. On this Independence Weekend, we can celebrate the providence of God who, who protected Washington's army as they, they crossed from Manhattan over to New Jersey. He sent a fog to hide their, their, their escape so that the British army that could have crushed them and ended the revolution that night didn't even know they were leaving. God sent them, uh, hid them through a, through a miraculous fog that was out of season so that they could escape. That same God who did just the opposite at Yorktown when uh, the, the, the British were pinned in at Yorktown and they were going to escape across the James River and just as their skiffs that were going to load the British army and help them escape so that they could continue the battle against these United States, God sent an unusual storm that washed their boats away and they were unable to escape so that the battle at Yorktown was won and the United States gained its independence. So I don't believe that the United States is the new Israel in any way. But I do believe that God had a purpose and a plan for this nation from the beginning, just as he had for all these other nations. And God sees. And just as he saw the sins of Edom, and he saw the sins of Gaza, and he saw the sins of Damascus, and he saw the sins of Israel, God sees our sin. And God promises that nations that turn their back on him, especially, now I believe that this is where there is a connection, especially where God had a special hand on a nation in a unique and unusual way in its founding, <laughs> he will hold that against them and punish them and discipline them for it. So, Please hear me as we celebrate this day. Amos, I believe, is a warning not just to the nation of Israel, but to all who would call themselves children of God, followers of God, who turn their backs on God, because the bottom line from this text is that surely God judges the sins of nations. But God always disciplines his children. And if you and I see in our own hearts, in our own lives, sin against God, maybe you're not talking about sin on a national level. We're talking about sin on a Dennis level. <laughs> Where I have sin, 
If I call myself a child of God, who had been created by God, who had been set free by the blood of Christ, delivered by God, and who had been blessed with with disciplers and people who came to teach me about how to have a relationship with God like Israel did. God has blessed me in all of those ways. He chose me. He's delivered me through his son. And he has raised me up. When I sin against God, he will discipline me. And that message is is as important as it is for our nation today. It has to begin somewhere. It has to begin here with us. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory.